Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome co-host to What's Making News, Russell Hanby, who, as I understand it, has um, just put uh, some of his boxes and cases down. He's in the middle of about to move to his new house. It's almost become a soap opera over the last few months, but we've got him for 20 minutes. Welcome <laughs> welcome to Viewpoints, <laughs> Russell Hanby. Thanks, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us where are you at? It's, it's turning into a soapbox. We should have made a, one of those YouTube uh, ah. <laughs> videos, stories, you know, because people put storyboards up there and anything can, can attract millions of... Uh, you might have even had people come and helped you move. Well, you never know, do you? <laughs> <laughs> How's anyway, it all going? Yes. Okay, a week, a week tomorrow we move in, so got another week there, yes. A week tomorrow. Um, so, you know, any pangs are re- I mean, you've got to leave a lot of memories behind. Yes, oh, yes. Uh, I suppose once you decide to go, you sort of uh, get, get into that mindset, you know, uh, uh, where you don't, you don't sort of linger on the sentimentality side of it, no. No, no, and it's all exciting because if you've found a place and you've bought it, you're always excited about the new place. Would that be a fair call? We've all been there. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, look. so all is good. Um, we haven't spoken about football much for a long time. Is there a reason for that? Because my team's doing very well. Yeah, that seems to be, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> uh, how are the bombers tracking? Oh, up and down. They did well a few weeks ago. They uh, actually, I think they were on the top of the ladder for uh, one week. That's <laughs> true. Till you now they've, Collingwood. Uh, they've dived a bit now, but uh, there's still there's always the future. Yes, and I can, yeah, there are some green shoots there. It does take time. You don't just usually suddenly turn everything around. Um, and of course, I can be very gracious now that uh, the Magpies are sitting pretty <laughs> at the moment. You, yeah, do you enjoy right. watching them at all, despite your antipathy towards them? Oh, yes, yes, you like to see good play no matter where that's from, I suppose, you know, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're so gracious, uh, Russell. On that <laughs> note, we'll get into um, what's making. There was no homework, was there, for you? No, no. Oh, that's good. Oh, well, you, well you've been too busy preparing to move, so I, I won't feel, I'll feel good about taking taking that off you. The Age, Russell, global heating on track to set record. Heat trapping greenhouse gases and an El Nino weather pattern could push global temperatures to record levels in the next five years, a new update by the World Meteorological Organisation has found. Yes, uh, apparently they've come up and say that there is a 70% likelihood that the annual average global uh, temperature between 2023 and 2027 will exceed 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels for at least one year. That's the first time that if that does happen. Now, in 2015, the chance of that happening was zero. No mm. chance, they uh, they thought. Now, in, in the last few years, 2017 to 2021, there's been a 10% chance of exceeding, uh, but this time it's 70%, they reckon. Now, the World Meteorological Organization, the WMO, predicts we will exceed 1.5 degree level on a temporary basis, but it will happen with increasing frequency. Now, the warming El Nino that you mentioned is expected to develop in the coming months and will combine with human-induced climate change, which will lead to higher temperatures. And that will have repercussions for health, uh, food security, water management of the environment and other things. Now, we think we're getting an El Nino because uh, it's indicated by the warming ocean surface temperature. And in the past month, that reached a record 21.1 degrees. 
and the World uh, Meteorological Organization expects at least one year will be the warmest ever in the next five years. So they're expecting that we'll have the, the warmest ever year within five years. Yeah, look, it's it's all disturbing news, really. There's nothing in that that's at all uh, anything other than gloomy. Uh, um, and we really haven't got on top of it, have we? No. It's a case of how we do it, too. People have tried and talked about various things with the greenhouse gases and uh, cutting out on fossil fuel, but it's uh, still not leading to uh, great change, is it, yet? No, I mean, there's, uh, and we see it in our own country, there's substantial in resistance from some, some quarters of the community that just, uh, they either deny it exists or they deny that uh, human intervention is causing the majority of it or they say that Australia's contribution is so small that nothing yes, needs yes. to be done. We've, we've heard all those arguments. Meanwhile, um, the temperatures are going up. Well, apparently, I mean, you've got to take these, uh, this World Meteorological Organization at face value. We assume the, the figures and the data is correct, don't you? You've got to do that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the science is in. It's, it's, it raises that interesting question, doesn't it, Russell, about um, in some quarters we've had some very, very loud noise about uh, questioning science, which is the... Uh, now, science can be wrong, but beyond science, what have we got? Well, that's right, yes, because, uh, you know, that science uh, looks for the proof and uh, exper- and tests and everything, doesn't it? And without that, uh, you know, you, you can poo-poo it, but uh, it's a bit hard to see the logic behind it sometimes, isn't well, it? Well, that's what I always say. I mean, you did math science, so did I. I mean, in terms of um, objective evidence, um, scientific research conducted properly um, is our best is our best opportunity, not not people cherry-picking some obscure report by one person, peer-reviewed international um, research um, that's replicated, uh, is our best guide. And all of that uh, information indicates quite strongly that the, the globe is warming and we've contributed to it. Yes, and I think there's too much evidence over the years that's showing that. Perhaps early on people might have been a bit more sceptical, but, uh, you know, you can't refute some of this scientific evidence. Uh, no, you can't. Yeah. Now, the other mm. thing about an El Nino and a La Nina is that when we say it's going to be hotter uh, and drier uh, or cooler and wetter, it's uneven across the globe, isn't it? I mean, it's not just every single place will be hot and drought-like. Some will still have it to a, a... It'll be at different rates, and some places it probably won't appear to be so. That That's fairly true, isn't it? Yes. In fact, I did hear this El Nino. We are expecting hotter and drier, but on the other hand, we could have uh, flooding as well. So it's uh, it's not just black or white, is it? No, no, no. It's not just black or white, uh, and um, it's uh, it's uh, also uh, what other colour? Red. I knew you'd throw that in there. Um, no, no. Look, and it's 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 an interesting one. It'll be interesting to see. Keep uh, our eyes on what happens down the track on that one. Um, are you on your e-scooter yet? No, I haven't got ventured out onto that. No. Uh, how about you? You, you, you went on I did, overseas. Yeah, you? I did when I was in Chile. They were pretty prevalent in there in in the San Diego in the city there and. Look, um, they seem to be working pretty well. I, I know they did have accidents and things, but um, they were a very 
much used a resource by people who were, were trying to keep off cars or yeah. or trams or trains. So, but here we've got a push to, to cut them. Tell us all about it. Yes, well, disability advocates are challenging Melbourne's e-scooter trial, logic, lodging a complaint with the National Human Rights Commission in a move that could stop the higher rides roll out in its tracks. And the trial has been extended to October at the moment. Now, the discrimination claim alleges that the higher scooters and e-bikes breach disability rights, mainly because they're left on footpaths willy-nilly and restrict access for people with limited mobility or vision. Now, uh, the, uh, an organisation called Push Mobility, its director, Shane Hyerhek, says that the city of Yarra is not doing anything to solve the parking problem on footpaths or the blocking of entrances. And now, uh, any trial outcome could impact also on other councils like Melbourne City, the Port Phillip, and the Ballarat councils in the rollout, uh, which, as I said, the trial's been extended October this year. Now, Mr. Hyerek, he also is going to lodge a complaint with the Victorian Ombudsman. Now, uh, he also says there's a problem with reporting any scooters because you've got to be able to see in order to scan a code. And that's no good if you're impaired with the vision. Uh, now, the Australian Human Rights Commission receives more complaints about all these breaches of disability rights than any other complaint in that particular area about the scooters. Yeah, I suppose well, there's, there's a point in that, I suppose, isn't there, really, you know? Well, yes, in, in, the, in the way it's been rolled out, but uh, I agree completely with them. However, I don't think prohibition is the answer to it and banning them. I think the answer is like anything. A prohibition tends not to be uh, too often the the best solution it's 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 educating people and um, monitoring and managing the situation so that all parties can get the best of it i mean there's always people who do things that they shouldn't be doing russell they break laws they don't support each other all sorts of ways and the solution is you just don't cut blanche ban everybody you've got to work on uh, those people who are not doing it to convince them one way or the other that do things properly because um, the greater good is that uh, e-scooters could be a very valuable resource used properly not just banned yeah. outright that's right. I mean, and one council came up with not even having many, many more easier parking places for yes. these vehicles. I yes. mean, you'd have to have them uh, fairly convenient to people. I think that's what I mean. people go to the, the end of where they want to go and just dump them there and leave them, don't they? That's been the problem. Correct. I mean, that's the whole thing. So you've got to build an infrastructure of um, facilities, resources, education, and also... Um, I guess uh, incentives and/or sanctions uh, into a system that makes it work, uh, and I think that's we've probably rolled them out without too much thought down those lines. No, I think that's right. So this, uh, the advocates of the disability advocates, probably aren't exactly wanting a ban. They just want something done about it, which is what we just said. You know, true. And maybe the headline doesn't do justice to the argument. You always got to the jury's always out on so many things, <laughs> Russell, isn't it? Yeah. So yes, many things. We need to take a short break. Can you hold the line, my friend? Y yes, certainly. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossek, and co-host Russell Hanby is there with me. Russell, welcome back. 
Thanks, Henry. And um, the next one, it's uh, an interesting headline. Read all about it. I can remember that cat's cry call uh, with the newspapers, often the yeah. afternoon newspapers. Read all about it. You'd see That's them right. on the city street corners, remember? Yeah, the old the old heralds outside from the street station. And the, and the, and the paper boys used to go up to the cars and uh, they'd all fossick around looking for change and, of course, the lights would go and they got their tip, didn't they? That they way. did, they <laughs> did. Read all about it. Uh, well, that's, we're not talking about buying a newspaper, listeners. Uh, the Age has an article here called Read All About It, Best Young Novelist Named. A savagely funny short fiction collection, a tender love story set in the 1950s and a thought-provoking exploration of masculinity and sexual violence have been recognised in this year's Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Australian Novelists Award. It's always good to see young people um, leading the way in this uh, and, and there's some really great stuff there. Um, have you read any of those books yet? No, I haven't actually. Uh, now, the winners are Katarina Gibson, uh, for a book called Woman I Know, Women I Know, George Haddad for Losing Face, and Jay Carmichael uh, for Marlowe. Now, each of these people win $5,000, uh, which doesn't sound that much, I suppose, today, but it's mm-hmm. a good incentive. Now, the writers uh, must be 35 or under at the time of publication. Now, the judges were critic and novelists, uh, Fiona Kelly McGregor and Bram Presser, mm-hmm. and the Spectrum Sydney Morning Herald editor, uh, Melanie Kembry. And they wrote, made some comments on the different works uh, about Gibson's work, uh, astonishing uh, skills with the form, uh, moving easily from uh, actual to fantastical worlds, uh, from sharp, straightforward uh, prose to concrete poetry. And Haddad rings with the sights and sounds of various locales in contemporary Western Sydney, giving new sights into sexual violence. And on Carmichael's work, which is based in post-war Melbourne, this crafted study of love between two men in conservative post-war Melbourne makes history immediate, every page pulsing with heart and sensuality. So uh, there you go. Those three have done very well. Oh, absolutely. And uh, they've written um, novels which uh, which are quite deep and thought-provoking, you know. They're... Um, and they and they touch on a lot of contemporary issues too, don't they? All three of them. Yeah, yes, mm. and it's interesting that they're very young. The people, by comparison, and they know what uh, pretty well what goes on in the fifties in Melbourne after the war. You know, um, they well before they were born. Yeah, well, they look. They could have done their research. One, two, which they probably did. Number two is we're all part of um, extended families, one way or the other. To, and and in many cases. We do listen to the stories, don't we, of our grandparents handed down to our parents, etc., etc. Uh, as I, I'm relatively familiar, Russell, with um, World War Two, because my parents, who are not with us anymore, they lived it in Europe in the in the 30s and 40s and pre-war. So the stories from them and 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 the other friends and relatives that migrated to Australia with them in the 50s, um, we do have this hand-me-down oral oral culture, don't we, as well as that which is we can find in the, uh, in the history books. Yeah, yes, that's right. That's probably where most people will get it uh, more easily that way, don't they, from the families and that. And, yeah, uh, the, yeah. Um, and there are, there are uh, I mean, for example, First Nations t- um, people in our Indigenous community, that's uh, a very rich oral culture in many respects, isn't it? 
I mean, yes, they, they do have their artwork, but a lot of that has been handed down by the generations uh, uh, of, of people orally. I mean, before the printing press, really, that was what it w- was, the, was the mode worldwide, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, I guess back even years ago, back to the old early Egyptians and that. And of course, they did paintings in caves and things even then, didn't they? Uh, paintings in caves. Music yeah. was another one. I mean, people. Yeah. Music's always been a great uh, uh, medium for uh, connecting people culturally. Yeah, music and so dancing to it too. Dancing is yeah, another one. Yeah, it's 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 the arts is a very rich, a very rich arena for, um, but both uh, sharing and developing uh, one's culture. Indeed, yes. Now, the next one, Russell, um, you're lucky you're not uh, trying to build a new house. (laughs) (laughs) Construction standstill. uh, Sky-high construction costs have prompted developers to shell thousands of buildings in Victoria, with experts warning they're unlikely to be built any time soon, if at all. And this follows on the collapse of the big building companies too. We heard about in the last few weeks, doesn't it? There's been a 30% surge in residential construction that has uh, caused development flatlining in Victoria. The the residential construction costs have gone up 30%. Yeah. And there's a $4 billion worth of work on approved homes has been stalled. Now, they reckon there's about 10,400 dwellings that got approval in the past two years. They've not even been commenced by the end of March. And that's up from 5,000 in March last year. So 10,400 been approved by the council and the government, uh, no start. Developers have ordered workers to stop building as as prohibitive costs and the threat of building companies going bust makes the council and state government building approval unworkable. Now, three-quarters of New South Wales Victorian projects were to be started. They're apartments or townhouses. Now, in 2022, 57,000 dwellings built in Victoria and the 10,000 stalled of that amount. So um, or the, or there were 57,000 built and another 10,000 stalled. The total value of the 10,400 is $4.3 billion out of a total of $24 billion for all new residential properties. And the standstill is aggravated by construction prices and the trade and material disruptions leading to the market standstill. Interestingly, though, in the smaller industry states of Queensland and Western Australia, they say business is booming in the housing area. Mm. It's an interesting one because you've got the commercial construction industry and you've got the residential construction industry. And from everything I'm reading, it's far more the residential uh, aspect component of the uh, building industry that's suffering the most in all this. Uh, Have you heard that? Yes, I have too. I mean, in our area, there are new houses going up on old blocks that they've pulled down, but I noticed in the last few months that they raised the old house to the ground and put a security fence around it, and it can stay like that for months or even a year, you know. Absolutely. So whether that's whether that slowdown is all part of it too. Mm, no, we've noticed that too. Yeah, the costs have gone up astronomically. And uh, also the other part too, labour from people I know who work in the construction industry, with so many uh, commercial projects on the go um, all around the uh, the state, that's certainly been certainly been uh, ramped up and supported by the state government in substantial part, but not entirely. Um, there's only so many tradies to go around. 
That's right, yes. And, and even if you try to get sometimes an electrician, they, they're they often tied up with commercial buildings, which, of course, uh, are big payers and um, bigger jobs, aren't they, usually? Ab- absolutely. So the cost, uh, you know, to the person down the street to get uh, a person to either really renovate their house or to build a new one, um, you, you've got to find more dosh in your pocket or your bank account or your credit card or loan from the government uh, from the banks so it's uh, it is it's 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 a tough it's a tough time at the moment russ odd spot we're nearly out of time i thought i thought i read this one i have to say i read this one and clearly i don't know the details of the court case but i would have been surprised as a lay person, if the court didn't dismiss the case, would you that's, agree with that, Russell? Yes, that's what I thought. <laughs> I, I, I would have been more surprised if they had awarded the the, the bloke to what he wanted. You know, I and would I, have been very surprised at that. Yes, absolutely. And then, of course, I um I was surprised by the man's view of things at the end of losing the case. That I must say, uh, gobsmacked me. But we will. <laughs> Put our listeners out of their misery. Tell us the odd spot, Russ. Uh, right, an IT uh, specialist on sick leave for 15 years sued his employer for not giving him a pay rise. The man from Reading in England felt he had been treated unfairly by IBM despite being entitled to $100,000 a year for up to 30 years, even though he has not done any work for the company since 2008. A uh, court dismissed the case. Uh, <laughs> the, the man said... The man said he's not greedy, but he's concerned about his family. So uh, he yes, <laughs> well, clearly the clearly the court, um, from a legal perspective, uh, and that was where their ruling would have come from, from where it would have come, uh, didn't agree with him. But uh, it's hard not to query the man's perception of things. I would yeah. think. Russell. So when I read it, I had to look at. He said, "You you you, you agree he, he gets a hundred thousand a year, don't you?" Uh, for 30 years? That's Look, if, getting, the, if the education department paid me another $100,000 for the next 30 years and I wouldn't have to work, I, right. cer- I certainly, I'd probably send them a Christmas card. <laughs> yeah, just present, you, you, you just present the medical certificate every now and again. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, that takes us out. Russell, you have a good weekend. I know you're almost on the move. Is it another week or a couple of days? Another week, yes. My daughter's coming down from New South Wales to give us a hand uh, in the last few days, so it's all happening, yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, you take care and we'll catch you um, sometime this time next week. Right, I'll find a little spot for us, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That was Russell Hanby, What's Making News, and good luck to him in his move, uh, which has been going on for some considerable time. You have a great uh, time, listeners, and I hope your weekend is an enjoyable and peaceful one. Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grussack. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to this edition of What's Making News co-host, Russell Hanby. Welcome, Russell. Thanks, Henry. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And uh, you are? I'm even better. And um, I hear you've almost completed your the, the long, drawn-out saga of selling a house, buying a house yeah. and moving into the new place. Yes, we've moved in a week ago now, a week today, actually, and uh, all the boxes are emptied, so we're just trying to work out still where everything goes, but uh, we're in, yes. Oh, wonderful. It's good to be there. Are you happy where you are, or have you got um, pangs of regret? No, it's good here, yes. uh, No worries. You've got to look forward rather than backwards, don't you? Yes. 
Oh, that's one way of looking at it. Although looking in the rear vision mirror is important when you're driving a car. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Right. What's making news? We've got some good stories here today, Russell. Winter's here and all's clear as we move into winter. Winter across most of Australia, this is in the age, is likely to be warmer and drier than average during the day this year, with clearer skies uh, increasing, however, Russell, the likelihood of sporadic overnight cold snaps. Have you had any cold snaps in the last few days? Not really, although this morning I noticed one of the cars has got to be out in the open and it was really frosted up the, well, you know, with a lot of water and that, uh, you know, fog overnight, the dew. Yeah. But, but uh, generally it's been fairly dry apart from that. But no frosts as such, though, no. Now, we've had the return of the El Nino weather pattern. This is impacting on uh, on, on Melbourne and uh, what's going on? You might, like to, um, you might like to tell us a bit about this positive Indian dipole which leads to clearer skies and more sunshine. Yes, it's, uh, well, the Bureau of Meteorology says there's a 50% chance of this being an El Nino year. The most recent forecasts are for this winter to be drier than average for much of Australia, warmer than average daytime temperatures and warm nights, except uh, inland, eastern and central parts. Now, there are two climate drivers, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, as they call it, and the East Indian Dipole. And generally, the El Nino brings dry weather and the El Nina is wetter, its cousin, if you like. Now, clearer skies mean, as we said, occasional cold nights and frost. Uh, and uh, so those two features, the East Indian Dipole and the El Nino Southern Oscillation. Uh, can you explain the East Indian Dipole, uh, perhaps, Henry? Oh, I think you can do that. <laughs> you, you've been reading up on it better than me. Well, it's a bit, it was a bit uh, complicated. That seems to be affecting the Western Australia and pushes the, the, the winds in from there a bit or something. Uh, and that in conjunction with the uh, El Nino gives us this weather pattern, you know. So what happens uh, in our side of the continent with all of this? Yeah, it seems to be in the seas on the outside, isn't it? Around, particularly in the West-type uh, seas, I think. The, well, uh, the, the positive Indian dipole is uh, over in the West, isn't it? Yes, and that's affecting the Indian the, Ocean. Yes, so that affects the weather, and that I guess pushes across the continent. I guess doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I think the I think the challenging thing is that you've got uh, competing different uh, changes, haven't you? You've got the uh, the positive Indian dipole, which uh, which works uh, in conjunction with the East India dipole, and of course the the two climate drivers, as you said, are the El Nino Southern oscillation and the east indian dipole and they uh, don't they're not always in sync in the same way which means that uh, you can have an el nino or a la nina and depending on how those things and the strength of those things uh, uh, a strong or weak el nino or la nina does that That's make right. sense to you yeah i think so yes the uh, the it's a positive east indian dipole and uh it uh, occurs on the western side, uh, unlike the El Nino, apparently, mm. with moisture moving from the region around Indonesia and spreading towards southern Africa. And mm. uh, during a damp year, winter cold fronts drag moisture across Australia. And uh, it's about a positive Indian dipole makes this less likely to occur. So uh, it's a little bit complicated to explain, but those two influences apparently are going to affect our, our winter, aren't they? Absolutely. 
and uh, and uh, the climate change is also shaping Australia. We talked about this, I think, last time. And global climates in uh, in in April, the global sea temperature was the highest on record, and the coral sea surface temperature was the second highest. And uh, Australia actually has warmed up 1.47 degrees between 1907 and 2021, so just over 100 years. Yeah, and look, that sounds, I think, what we've been saying sounds like a lot of technical, <laughs> meteorological <laughs> information. Are we, are we any clearer? I, think we are. <laughs> I don't think we've made it clearer, but trying to do that now, Russell. Now, to declare an El Nino season this year, four conditions need to be met. The first two, warmer ocean waters accumulated near South America and international modelling forecasting it will occur, both of those have taken place. So two of the four have been ticked off for an El Nino, which is hotter and drier for most places. The other, in our continent, the other two conditions have not yet been met. A certain level of air pressure difference between Tahiti and Darwin over three months and equatorial trade winds, which are now close to average weakening. Now, those four things need to happen. Two have. There's still time for the other two, and I'm sure the uh, the Bureau of Meteorology will keep us informed. So I guess there's a 50, 50, 50% chance at the moment of an El Nino uh, happening, depending on those other two factors occurring. Does that yes, make sense that, now? That, yes, I think so. So we're halfway there. We're halfway there. That, yeah, the Bureau says there's a 50% chance, and that's why, yes. Yes, now we could have saved ourselves a lot of trouble and not confuse <laughs> all our listeners. I wonder, Russell, do you think we sounded like we were authoritative or that we were bumbling along know. amateur meteorologists? <laughs> I, can't, I, I think, can't. I think we're bumbling a little bit. I think we're trying to <laughs> interpret and add a little bit. And uh, once you get onto things like the East Indian Dipole, well, you know, Oh, yes, and then you threw to me when I wasn't ready for it halfway through it. Thanks for that. But, but I'm, I rapidly reread my notes and we got somewhere. On that note, Russell, we'll go to a bright idea. You might like to talk about a bright idea. Yes. Well, the drivers would be forced to keep headlights on at all times under a radical proposal to change Victoria's road rules. Now, Upper House MP Nick McGowan, he's pushing for laws which would require drivers to keep driving lights on during the day in order to tackle the soaring road toll. Now, Canada already does this. Now, a Monash University study wants daytime running lights, DRLs as they're called, they're on the all new cars in the last 10 years, to be mandatory on all new vehicles, if, even if they're not at the moment. And that apparently can lead to up to 20% reduction in the risk of crashes. Now, older vehicles, you just need to keep you turn your lights on in the day. Now, the Monash University study found that the daytime multi-vehicle crashing with this uh, idea of lights on can be reduced by up to 8.8%. And these reductions are highest in the dusk and dawn and the higher speed zones. And Mr McGowan wants the federal government to require all new vehicle imports to have these daytime running lights installed. Mm, what do you think? Sounds a pretty good idea, really. I must admit, particularly if it's a gloomy day, my car doesn't have these DRLs that come on automatically. But I've been turning my headlights on in the day, uh, not for me to see, but for others to see me, you know. 
Yeah, yeah. No, look, if it's an if those if that study's um, makes uh, has got efficacy, an eight point eight percent reduction would be most welcome, Russell, and any reduction would be welcome. Of course, um, as uh, Premier Andrews said. Uh, there are other factors also that need to be taken into consideration. Speed, tiredness and drink driving are factors which uh, between them uh, add up to far more than the 8.8%, don't they? And if we, could, mm-hmm. if we could impact on speed and people driving under the influence of drugs or alcohol or driving when they're extremely tired, those sorts of things would uh, make that uh, number even less. And yes. more significantly so. And especially in the come to the roads, along the roads, particularly in the western Victoria, aren't very good. And, uh, you know, they, they're really a road hazard too. They could pick some of the roads up better, you think, too. Yeah, that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't do any harm at all, Russell. When you take a short break, can you hold the line, my friend? Yes, certainly. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossack and Russell Hanby. Have you had that uh, break, my co-host? Are you topped up, ready for the second half? Yes, ready, all ready and waiting. Ready, set, go. All right, then I'll uh, I'll lead in with it, Russell. Endometriosis research discovery. This is in the age, uh, another example, and it's uh, it's quite heartening. We seem to find them every week. A team of Australian researchers become the first in the world to successfully grow tissue from all types of endometriosis, paving the way for new research into the effective treatments uh, and more targeted diagnosis for this very debilitating condition, Russell. Another Australian research breakthrough in medicine. Yes, uh, I remember a year or two ago we discussed endometriosis, mm-hmm. didn't we? Anyway, the disease which uh, uh, when, when, which occurs when tissue similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside the organ. It affects one in nine women, often in their 30s to 40s, and researchers at Sydney's Royal Hospital for Women will now be able to test drugs and match patients' symptoms with specific proteins after successfully growing 30 different lab-grown tissues taken during surgery. So the main thrust of the story is they can do it all in the lab, not uh, needing a human body to work on. Now, the professor, Jason Abbott, said that collecting the cells in one place for the first time would allow researchers to accurately diagnose patients, which could lead to potentially limiting the need for invasive and painful surgeries. And uh, it can now help fast-track new treatments by testing new and and existing drugs on the lab tissues rather than in humans. And women's health expert Susan Davis of Monash University says the research could mean less disruption to women's working lives. So it's all a a plus-plus situation for that one, isn't it? Yes, and what they also found, as we said there, Russell, um, as with... as with cancer, um, is no one uh, very much like we thought breast cancer 30 years ago was one disease treated in one way. They now understand that endometriosis is much more complex than that. It's uh, There's no one single solution to a very complex issue. And it, look, it's very heartening news because, um, you know, as this uh, woman Kate Ford and her miracle twins, Ryder and Dakota, exemplify, they had a small window of opportunity to have, uh, have children because it does affect uh, it does affect the potential for um, women becoming pregnant doesn't it this uh, this yes. terrible yes. debilitating disease 
Yes, and apparently because you say it comes in different varieties, as it were, uh, they're very able to sort of isolate these in the lab now and work on the, with a the drug treatment for each specific uh, item, and hence uh, much better, much good outlook, isn't it? Yeah, and the study that uh, found that the highest interesting prevalence of endometriosis was among women aged 35, Russell, to 39, and having the disease was, um, quote, associated with a greater likelihood of poor to moderate workability so uh, debilitating certainly is uh, is a feature of this this disease and uh, it's so good that um, for a lot of reasons uh, as always that um, we've made another another great breakthrough yes that's great news now hex that's uh, this is a sorry story isn't it russell um, we want to be the you know the education country, if not the education state, which we we our governments pride themselves on here in Victoria. But uh, hex hex really knocks people around, doesn't it? It does, and uh, the Herald Sun says forty four years a hex of debt. Uh, some university students will need <coughs> more than forty years to pay off a single degree. A new report has warned as fears mount that the spiralling costs will cause more enrolments to drop. And the National Tertiary Education Union reveals that graduates from, say, the four-year management degrees are likely to be worst affected, taking 44 years to pay off back loans of $119,331. A huge amount, isn't it? Now, students and graduates' debts are to rocket to, to the highest level in three decades since the scheme started. And uh, indexation each year is added on at the end of each June. It's due to the uh, CPI and the cost of living. And that can make a 7.1% increase or more than $1,700 average per annum. Now, the study found more, many more four-year degrees would cost more than $100,000 to fully repay the debts. For example, a humanities and social science degree would cost over 100000 in the financial year ending 2021, the outstanding HEX debts altogether was $74.3 billion. That's four, up four times more than in 2009. Now, costs, uh, as we said earlier, could discourage potential students from enrolling. And RMIT Student Union says that the rising costs, especially uh, indexation, will delay students' future investments themselves, like owning their own home. And uh, on top of that, Swinburne uh, Student Union wants a cap on indexation for students. So it's a lot of money they've got to pay back, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's interesting. Russell, I go back. I was so fortunate we didn't have HEX in our time. Um, taxpayers paid uh, for our degrees in that sense, and uh, I wouldn't have been able to go to uni. It's as simple as that. I'd like to think that uh, many people, I'm just one of many, who... Um, by taxpayers paying our fees, we've paid it back in the work we do, you know, uh, in, in there's so many different degrees that uh, we've got. And uh, uh, if you look at it as an investment uh, in the education of the people, uh, it's then paid back to society in the productive work that a well-educated uh, workforce does. Um, and so many people won't have that opportunity. And having this sort of debt for, what what is it, 44 years, in some yeah. cases, not all, uh, is that the sort of incentive we, we should be having to, to have really. a highly it, it, educated population? 
Not you wouldn't think so, would you? I know, and it, it cuts in after a certain when they earn a certain amount, doesn't it? So uh, you know, I don't know whether the forty-four years starts when they first repay, repay or or from now, you know. But even even so, yes, I was the same with you. I had so-called free uh, university education, mm. I suppose you call it. I even had a, a paid studentship Me to do too. teaching. Yeah, which, which it wasn't a lot, but it was enough to you know much better than people who didn't get it, wasn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. I couldn't have gone to uni without a studentship in the first place. No. This, this, of course, segues into the teaching profession, which at the moment it's very hard to find people wanting to go in the, into teaching or even stay in it. There's a lot of factors in that. But um, I, I, look, I, my view is um, <laughs> that education is an investment for both personally and for society, and you want a well-educated uh, society, and you don't want them crippled by debt for many years and uh, I think uh, it all depends on your philosophy you know and universities now are run like businesses aren't they really and uh, it's it's you know you got to pay for it and uh, we're now seeing the consequence of it I mean people can debate this topic uh, till the cows come in so to say uh, if you're living in in rural farmlands but uh, and you won't get an answer just depends on what side you take my view is um, we as a society shouldn't be putting students through this sort of situation uh, which at the end of the day um, I think uh, is a disincentive to go to tertiary education and secondly it uh, it really cripples the life uh, the life uh, I guess uh, quality of so many people who end up uh, being crippled by debt for a long time I don't think that's of great benefit and it's a disincentive um, to do it uh, no, no that's true and, and uh, also uh, if, and if people decline from going into a university study then ultimately we won't have the experts of the future will we do you know, that, that we need yeah and and uh, I don't think Australian society has been disadvantaged significantly at all. I think it's been benefited by the fact that taxpayers invested uh, in in the education of our young in the way that they did uh, back in those in the nineteen seventies and uh, and uh, early eighties. Uh, so I think I think we need to have a rethink about the whole thing. Uh, Russell, moving on to the odd spot depresses me when I think about how. Um, we're not doing things that uh, benefit society through education in the way we cu- currently have our systems set up. Uh, the odd spot. This is interesting, isn't it? Uh, I'm yes, not sure yes. that the owner of the car is <laughs> very happy, though. No. I, I think I might have seen it on the weekend news, actually, the picture you? of this. <laughs> uh, a BMW driver in Cornwall, England, has learnt the hard way where not to park after their car was left on the beach, only to wash out to sea. Lifeguards quipped, you can't park there, as incoming waves picked up the vehicle and transported it away from the shore. The car was taken out a considerable distance. It was recovered, but likely to be undrivable. Why, why would you park your car on the beach and, you know, I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's pretty silly, isn't it, if the tide's yeah. out? Yeah, I don't know why they'd go on the sands uh, even, you know. Uh, and leave it were, there. Yeah, leave it there. Cause, so that's just weird. So you could argue that, that that's the consequence of being silly, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and um, 
with all the electrical gadgetry to cars now and computer right. chips and that, yes. that would probably be the end of the car, wouldn't it? That's right. Not like your old FK Holden that you could probably uh, <laughs> dry out and uh, put a new spark plug in and away you go. Yeah. No, I, think, uh, <laughs> I, think be a, I think this is a write-off. All the computers, everything's computerised these days, doesn't it? You know? Oh, yes. Yeah. So anyway, well, they, as I said, they've learnt the hard way, haven't they? And a BMW, that's not exactly the cheapest model of car, is it? No, no, they could be what up to 100,000 or so, can't they? Some of them, mm, I well, uh, have you ever had a BMW? No, have you? No, <laughs> I've had a, I've had a, uh, we, we own an Altima, which is the su- superseded version of the supersedes the uh, I think it was the Magna. Uh, remember the old Magnus? Yes, yeah. Oh, good cars. Yeah, it's a nice car. Um, that's my wife's car. I've got a Pulsar, so she's got the good car. <laughs> I've got the good car, but it's not quite the same. What have you got as a car? Well, we've got two Toyotas. I've got a Camry, and uh, my wife's got a, um, a Corolla. I've had, we had Corolla, Corollas. We've had three Corollas over the time. They're really good. And yeah, but we're going to downsize cars too because we don't tend to need two cars, you know. We can get away with one, and uh, rather than keeping one outside of the garage, we can put one in. So that's uh, our little trick. They were a good car. We had a Corolla too for a while. They were a good, solid car. They often got good reviews as being uh, value-for-money cars, didn't they? They weren't the yeah. dearest car, but they were good for their price. Yeah, and reliable and easy to drive. And uh, Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm, interesting. Well, time's got away from us, Russell. Well, um, I'll let you go uh, away and uh, have a enjoy your new abode. Is that the correct word? Uh, yes, I think we're getting a bit of furniture coming today, so that'll be uh, good, yes. And uh, we'll catch up again same time next week. All right, we'll look forward to it, yes. It's Russell Hanby, What's Making News, great co-host. He's got plenty on his plate at the moment. Have a great weekend, listeners, and we will speak again next week, same time.